verses 1 to 11. Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to come to you and read from your word, knowing that it is your letter to us, that we get to know you intimately through it. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, we can know you. Thank you that you know us. Lord, I ask that as we read your word and as we study it, that you would again become the most beautiful thing in the world to us. That you would be our priority, our thing of first importance and that everything else that steps up and tries to take your place or tries to distract us from you, that you would kill them in our hearts and that you would be our one and only. Teach us what that means. Teach us what that looks like. And Father, I ask that as we live and as we interact with people, I ask that you would turn people's hearts to know you to place their faith in you, whether it's today or this week. Lord, I ask that you would allow us to see you work in people's lives and that people would come to faith in you this week. Grow your kingdom, Lord, through the work of your humble servants. As we study this passage, Father, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Today, we're going to see that the gospel is to, be believe, is to be believed by sinners tenaciously. The gospel is to be believed by sinners tenaciously. Let's start off and let's talk about the gospel. The gospel is a term that we throw out a lot. It, it's considered Christianese. It's a language that those who are followers of Jesus Christ or those who have grown up going to church will just use here, there, and they'll just throw it around. The gospel is one of those terms. But while the gospel is one of those terms, so often we don't know actually what it means. I, I, I sit and down and do premarital counseling from, for people from time to time, and if it's people I don't know, even people I do know, I, I, I ask them what their faith journey is. How, uh, what, how have they grown to know Jesus? Where did it start? And I use the word faith journey because I, I naturally assume everyone that I interact with, if I don't know them very, very well, I naturally assume they are not a believer. And faith journey is a statement that will include everyone. 
and I hear, hear some very interesting things. And I was sitting down, and lots of times they'll come to the point where as they're answering this question of their faith journey, I will look at them and say, do you know what the gospel means? And I'm able to pr- share the gospel with a lot of people when I do premarital counseling with them. But lots of them, when I, and even not just premarital, premarital people, but other ones, and I ask them, what is the gospel? There's a lot of fluttering around of words and a lot of ahems and ahas and stumbling. And, and sometimes they'll say, oh, it's, you know, it's the first four books of the Bible. Or the New Testament, if they understand a little bit more about the geography of the Bible. And that's, yes, that it can be true, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are gospels, but they are not the gospel. Paul, in our passage, defines for us what the gospel is. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-6, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. The gospel, the gospel can be simply defined as God's news to humanity. God's good news to humanity. Gospel literally means good news. God's good news to humanity and has some very important elements according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is what the gospel is about. Jesus. This was a man who was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago. He wasn't just a man, in fact, but he was the God as well. The eternally existent Son of God lived among us completely sinless. That Jesus was a historical being is agreed upon by everyone. Every major historian who's worth their salt agrees that Jesus lived on this earth 2,000 years ago. It's not debatable. We have his teaching. We have his recorded miracles. We have writings of some people like Josephus, who was a historian that lived 20 to 30 years after Christ. Josephus wrote this and said, now there, was, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. Josephus was not a follower of Jesus Christ. He was not a Christian. But he writes this about Jesus and says, hey, this man, if it be lawful to call him a man because he did such amazing, miraculous things, something was different about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus definitely died. This man who lived the perfect life, loved by all, died. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried Paul inserts the he was buried to prove the fact that Jesus died. Non-believers at the time of Jesus acknowledged that Jesus died, and they could point to the tomb where Jesus was buried. Historians at the time, we could talk about Josephus, we could talk about Tacitus, we could talk about Marabar Serapion, we could talk about the Talmud. All these crazy weird names that none of us want to pronounce, they all point to the fact that Jesus, this divine man, died a normal excruciating death the gospel is that jesus definitely died but this is where things get quirky here's where we leave the normal historians behind 
Jesus didn't just die as a falsely accused man. He wasn't just a good teacher who got on the bad side of the religious elite. Jesus died with a purpose. Jesus definitely died for our sins. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins, for our sins. That three-letter word, for, F-O-R, is a pretty amazing word. I'm a geek. I love grammar. For, this preposition, is a pretty amazing word. It means on our behalf, in our place. So when we say that Christ died for our sins, he died on our behalf, in our place. We should be the ones that died and hung on the cross. But we didn't. Jesus came up and tapped us on the shoulder and said, no, I'm doing it for you. Sometime, if you have a pen and you want to take the time, you can make a list of all the sins of your past, all the sins that come back and haunt you, all the sins you wished you didn't do, I think about when I was a kid. I was a very, very angry kid. My sister can testify to that. Very angry. Yelling all the time, getting into all sorts of arguments, beating people up verbally because my mom, mom wouldn't let me do anything physically. I was a very angry kid. And as I grew up and my anger grew, I would look down on everyone else, which is a weird thing that someone could be so angry, could be so proud. And everyone in our community, everyone in our church, I'd look down at them and say, I am better than they are. I got things together. I know the truth. I know this. I know that. I'm better than So I was angry. I was proud. But not only that, I was hypocritical. Because as I looked down on everyone else, I knew that I wasn't better than they. I put on an act. Everyone in my church thought I was this goody two-shoes, but... In high school, I was diving into all sorts of horrible sins that I shouldn't be diving into. I was addicted to pornography. I was addicted to this, addicted to that. I got to the point where I realized, yes, I am, I am a sinner, and I'm a horrible, wicked person, and I hated myself, and I thought that God hated me, and I said there was no hope. I committed the worst sin of all. I said that God, it was impossible for God to save me. And so I made a plan to commit suicide. By the grace of God, I didn't go through it. But I look back on that day and I look on the struggle of the sins because when you start addiction so early, they stick with you for a long time. And so there's some days I sit in my house and images pop through my mind and memories. And it tears me down. But the amazing thing about the gospel is that if we take out that pen and we start writing all those sins down that we are so ashamed of that we wish we'd never done we can take that list we can crumble that up and we can throw it over our shoulder because Christ died for those they're done they're taken care of they're no more they have no hold over me the chains are broken. And when Satan comes up and whispers in our ear, we can say, you liar, get away. I stand redeemed. His death is sufficient for all sins, past, 
present, and future. How do we know that? How do we know that beyond a shadow of a doubt? Because Jesus definitely died for our sins, yes, but he is alive again. He is alive, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 4 to 7. He was buried, but that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, and he appeared to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Then he appeared, uh, though many are living, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. All the people he appeared to are proof of the fact that he is alive. The grave did not hold him. He, he burst it out, proving that he defeated sin, death, and the devil. And therefore, his salvation that he offers, the forgiveness that he gives and says, if you would just take it, it is real, it is true, and it is complete. The gospel is that Jesus definitely died for our sins and is alive again. And don't forget, there's proof. Paul says, there's proof. Everything was done according to the scriptures. It was prophesied for thousands of years before. You say, well, which part of the scriptures? The whole thing, from Genesis to Malachi, all of the Old Testament points forward to the coming Messiah. Everything in the Old Testament screams that Jesus was going to come, and he was going to die, and he was going to come back to life, and behold, it happened. I had a teacher once who said that he loved the Old Testament so much because it reminded him of the New Testament. Everything was a mirror. One passage in question we could look at is Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 to 11. This was written by King David hundreds of years before Jesus. He says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You've made known to me the path of life, and you'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is talking about Jesus, that he would come, he would experience the grave, but then he would be raised back to life. The gospel. Jesus definitely died for our sins and is alive again, and I can show you proof of that fact. The gospel. We live it around it so much that too often, because we're faced with it, we get callous to it. May we never do that. May we never lose the awe of the amazing truth that Jesus, the Son of God, came and died for me, even though I am not worth it. The gospel, the gospel is for sinners. Paul describes himself in a very graphic term, very graphic terms in this passage. And I debated over whether to dive into this or not, but the scripture says it, and I had to. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, And last of all, he, Jesus, appeared to me, Paul, as one abnormally born. The NIV makes this term sound so nice, so clean, so cut and dried. The KGV, the King James says, as one born out of due time, which is a little more to the point, but again, sounds very nice. The word abnormally born is a medical term at this time. It is used for three things. It is used for an abortion, it is used for a miscarriage, and it's used for a premature birth, which at this time would almost certainly guarantee the baby's death. This term at this time is a shocking, graphic, uncomfortable term that brings up a lot of images. And because it was so shocking, graphic, and uncomfortable, 
It was used at this time, not just in scripture, but in Greek society, to talk about human wretchedness, the worst possible human wretchedness in this picture. Why would Paul describe himself as a dead baby laying in his mother's arms? Because he considered himself the chiefest of sinners. Paul said, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul was dead. Not physically, no. He was able to move around, he was able to talk, he was able to breathe. Physically, he was alive, but spiritually, he was completely and utterly dead. As he was on the road to Damascus, going from Jerusalem to Damascus, he thought he was doing God a great favor because he was a champion of the truth. He was going from house to house and rooting all of these horrible people who believed in Jesus Christ, these heretics, and he would grab them and drag them to prison, and he would vote to have them put to death. He said he was doing God a favor, but in fact, by doing God a favor, he was acting forcefully against God. Jesus on this road to Damascus actually tells Paul, I am Jesus, I am the one you are persecuting. Not these people, it's me, Paul. Paul, in persecuting the Christians, was fighting against God. If we were Christians at this time and we heard about Paul on the road to Damascus, we would say, God, you need to strike that man dead with lightning. He deserves that. But what does God do to this man we would say, we would declare, is the chiefest of sinners? God looks down with pity at the spiritually dead man and he appears to him. A man who is like a stillborn baby, the thing we would say is the most beyond hope. And God looks at him and breathes life. The one who said, everyone said, had no hope, comes alive. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, not I, I didn't work. It was the grace of God that was with me. The gospel is not for those who delude themselves into thinking that they have everything in order. The gospel is not efficacious, it's not for them. The gospel is for those who say, I am a sinner and I am beyond hope. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We might look at ourselves and say, I'm not that bad. Oh yeah, I see Paul. He was horrible. He killed people. But I'm not Paul. I didn't actively work to kill Christians. And yeah, that's probably correct. We're not as bad as Paul. In our eyes. But every sin we commit, no matter what label we want to put on it, every sin we commit is against the holy God. David confessed this in Psalm 51, verses 3 to 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David wrote this after he was convicted with sleeping with Bathsheba and having Bathsheba's husband murdered. 
we would look at what David did and say, yeah, David sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband. And David said, no, what I did wasn't right. But who I ultimately sinned against was God. When we live in a way that is not according to the holy standard of our God, we are setting ourselves up as God's enemies, Scripture says. It's not just, oh, you know what, I fell into this little sin. No, Scripture says we are God's enemies because of what we did. Every sin that we do, from the littlest white lie that comes out of our mouths, to the lustful thoughts that we have and the lustful actions, to the gossip that we talk about, to murder that we do, whatever sin that we do is all equal in God's eyes. We are the ones that put this hierarchy up and say, oh, this sin isn't as bad as that one, but in God's eyes, they're all the same because in the God's eyes, they're all against God. They're all a sign of our spiritual death, that we are without hope, that we are like this stillborn child, which is why Jesus came, because we needed someone to come to us, pick us up, and breathe life into our lungs. Jesus came for those who realize that they're sinners, that they need help because they can do absolutely nothing. He died for our sins. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but praise God, now I see. The gospel. The gospel is for sinners. Unfortunately, we get so comfortable in our holiness so often. We grow so callous to the truth that we are miserable wretches apart from Christ that we forget this fact. But may we never. The gospel is for sinners. It's for sinners to believe. Paul defines the gospel for us. He tells us who it's for, but he doesn't just define it for us so that we can have this mental knowledge of saying, oh, that's nice. Thanks for telling us, Paul. There's a lot of people who walk around as big-headed infants. They have all this knowledge of the world about the Bible, but their bodies, their spiritual bodies are shriveled up. There's no growth beyond their mind. Unfortunately, all this mental knowledge that people might have of saying, yes, I know what the Bible says. Yes, I know who God is. I've got this knowledge. I know this. I know that. It does nothing for salvation. There's so many people who are in an eternity of hell who knew about the gospel, but they never believed it. They never made the decision for themselves to trust in Jesus for their salvation. Paul ends our passage with this sentence. He says, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed, Corinth. Paul and the rest of the missions, pr missionaries preached the gospel, and the Corinthians just didn't nod their head and say, that's nice, great sermon, preacher. They believed it. They believed it. Paul expounds on this idea at the beginning of our passage where he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you take your stand. To believe is to receive and to stand. It's echoed in a verse that I love to quote in John 1.12. John 1.12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who hear the gospel, who say, oh, that's nice, we must make a choice. It's not enough to say, that's nice. We must make a choice to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, 
that he came to die on the cross for my sins, and I trust him alone to save me, a sinner. Receiving is that act of confessing with that mouth, of reaching out and grabbing hold of that gift, not just to have the mental assent, but to say, yes, I believe, and I claim it as mine. Standing is the act of living according to that belief. It's the whole example that people say of, of you walk up to this chair and you say, this is a nice chair. I trust this chair to hold me up. Do I? What do you think? Do I trust this chair to hold me up? Yes? If I say, I trust this chair to hold me up and I come over here and sit down right here, do I trust that chair to hold me up? No. I have to say it, and I have to do it. I tried to get the chair as close as possible to the edge. I could have done a little bit more just to see what people would say and do. <laughs> we have to, standing is saying, is, is doing it. I believe, and I'm going to live according to it. There are plenty of people who have one foot in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the other foot in some other teaching. But that's not belief. I was talking to one Hindu student 10, 15 years ago, and he was saying, oh, Jesus is amazing. I worship Jesus. I have a statue of him along with all these other idols. That's not belief. But so often today in our lives, in people's lives, in our culture, they have Jesus along with all their works. They have Jesus and all this other church teaching. But that's not belief. That's covering our bases. And covering our bases does not bring salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the gospel but through me. And so whenever we put anything else up along with him, it's not belief. It's not belief. The gospel is for those who believe, who receive the gift and stand in it saying, I will not trust in anything else. And I will not give off the impression that I trust in anything else. It's not an easy stand to take because we get pulled by friends, we get pulled by family, and we don't want to make them mad. But if we truly believe in Jesus, we will trust only in him. We will not trust in anyone else. We will not trust in anything else. And we will make sure the world around us knows that that is what we believe. The flip side to belief is what Paul terms believing in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, he says, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. The phrase could be also translated without due consideration or in a haphazard manner or thoughtlessly or at random. It's an incoherent belief. It's saying, I am a Christian but you're actually not. This is the person you meet on the street corner who says, I'm a Christian because I've gone to church. Or, I'm a Christian because I've gone through catechism. Or, I'm a Christian because I've taken communion. Or, I'm a Christian because I've been baptized. I'm a Christian because I've prayed these canned prayers. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Whatever else they want to say, but they've placed their faith in something other than Jesus Christ. They've taken the clear teachings of Scripture and they've thrown it aside and trusting in something else that's going to damn them to an eternity in hell. The gospel is so simple. Why do we want to take it and mix it with all these other things? 
Why do we want to take the powerful truth that it says that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone and allow our kids to think there's other ways to God? And say, yeah, oh, it's okay. I'm going to teach them about Jesus and about all these other things, and they have to make the decision themselves. That's like asking my two-year-old and tell him, hey, you can decide whether you want to wear floaties in the pool or not. He's not going to wear floaties in the pool, and he's going to drown. Our kids need to know that there is only one truth, and that's it. They can choose to not believe it, but we can't muddy the waters and say there is another truth when there is not. The gospel is for sinners to believe. We must believe it. May we not grow callous to that fact. May we not forget. Finally, the gospel is for sinners to believe tenaciously. I don't get to use that word often, tenaciously. It's a really good word. You need to find some way this week to insert it in your sentences, tenaciously. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 15, 2, by this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. He calls the Corinthians to hold firmly to this gospel, to realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope. Picture the classic movie scene. Man's running. People are chasing him. It comes, the path comes to the edge of a cliff. Rain is pouring down. He slips and he tumbles off the cliff to his doom. But just in the last minute, he grabs a tree root and he holds on. Tenaciously. This is what this word is talking about. Tenaciously, firmly. He's not letting him go because that tree root is saving him from assured death. The same is true of the gospel. It has saved us from assured eternal death, so we are to hold on to it tenaciously. We will not let go. Now, Paul's not saying in this passage that we have the ability to lose our salvation because we are saved by grace and we are kept by grace. Nothing we did saved us. Nothing we do can take us out of God's hands. We are kept by him. But... If we do not hold tenaciously to the gospel, if we do not keep it in front of us at all times, we're going to start slipping in our life. We're going to start growing callous to the truth of the gospel and it becomes mundane to us where it's just this other thing that we do on Sunday mornings. We start forgetting. We start living like we're not saved. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hold firmly is the same as hold unswervingly. Maggie and I got married eight years ago, by the grace of God. After marriage in Texas, We went on our honeymoon in Colorado. We spent a week around Colorado Springs, then we hopped the Rockies and drove around western Colorado and then New Mexico and then back down to Texas. To hop the Rockies, we had to go over Monarch Pass, which was quite an adventure. Uh, The day we were gonna do it, it was clear sky day. It was perfect, awesome day. Middle of May, beautiful weather. We stopped at the town at the foot of the Rockies ate supper, great weather, so we stayed a little longer eating supper. 6.30, we jump in the car and we start driving up. Dusk is falling. As we are driving up, 
the, cool, the car that someone rented for us has this cool temperature gauge there. So as we're going up, the temperature gauge is going down exponentially. Snowflakes start falling a little bit. Then they start get falling harder. Then we can't see anything. Whiteout condition in the Rockies. At this time, the thought goes through my head, I just got married, and now I'm going to die. <laughs> we slow to crawl, and we keep driving, because there's nothing else we do. If I stop, I got, might get rammed. So I keep driving up. I can barely see the center line over here. I can't see the other line or the cliff, whichever one it is. And so I'm hugging the center line, driving as slowly and as carefully as I can on that center line going up. We crest the, the pass. There's this nice little way station with lights there and parked cars. And I say, oh, that's nice. And for some strange, idiotic reason, I don't stop. <laughs> And we keep going, and we're going down, and it's still whiteout condition. I'm still hugging them. I'm passing no cars by the grace of God. But as we're going down, the temperature finally starts rising. Snow starts leaving. Get down to the bottom. Beautiful weather, clear skies. I'm like, where did this come from? Now I've grown older and mature, and I know where it came from, and I know to stop at the way station. On that mountain... I held unswervingly to that center line, not going to the right or to the left, because I knew if I went to the right or the left of that center line, it was an assured death. This is what Paul is talking about. Holding, if, we, if we hold firmly to the gospel, we will hold unswervingly in our lives to the center line of truth, not going to the right or to the left. We will hold unswervingly, we will hold firmly, and it just doesn't affect our lives, Paul says, but affects our words. Paul inserts this nice little phrase into his gospel introduction, and I've gone way over time, but that's okay. If he inserts this nice little small phrase in, in his talking about the gospel, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The first thing the prioritized thing that Paul told the Corinthians was the gospel. If we believe the gospel tenaciously, it will be the thing of first importance in our lives. It is our hope, and we want others to have this hope too. If we see someone, we're holding on to that branch on the cliff, and we see someone falling down, what are we going to say? We're going to say, hey, hold on to this branch. Grab a hold of me. It's going to hold. It's not going to fall. But too often, because we don't believe tenaciously, we look at people falling around us, and we say things like, well, you know what? They have to make their own decisions, even though we know where that decision is going to take them. We say things like, you know, they're content in their own spirituality. I, 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 don't, I don't want to rock the boat in our friendship, in our relationship. Yeah, I, I can't push my faith on them. Or whatever phrase we throw out there of excuse, if we believe these phrases, we are not holding firmly to the word that was preached to us. What would it be like if we had this attitude of Paul? 
What would it be like in our lives if the gospel was the thing of first importance? If we truly realized how amazing it is that we have this hope and the gospel is for me a sinner and I truly believe it and I don't believe anything else, what would it be if that affected us? Not just our minds, but everything about us. What would it be if it was the first thing of importance in our conversations? Not the weather, not the sports, not politics, not our health, but the amazing truth that Jesus definitely died for our sins and is alive again, and I can show you proof. What would it be if that was the thing of first importance? Our lives would change. I can guarantee it other people's lives would change too if this was the truth. The gospel is for sinners to believe tenaciously. Now this morning, I have to ask you two questions. The first question is, have you believed? Has there been a point in your life yourself, where you've come to Jesus and said, I am a sinner, I need you, you are my only hope, and I place my faith in you to save me from my sins. Has there a point in time that you've done that? Or are you in the mental ascent category? Where you've just received all these amazing facts all throughout your life and you've put them on the shelf of things that you know, but you've never acted upon them. The amazing grace of Jesus Christ is for you today. I ask you today, make the decision, draw the line in the sand and say, I believe. Come and make a decision for Jesus Christ. Second question I have to ask is, have you believed tenaciously? Have you believed tenaciously? Or is your life lukewarm? Confessing Jesus as our savior, placing our faith in him, that saves us. We're saved for eternity, but Jesus didn't save us for eternity. He saved us for right now. So, have you believed tenaciously, or is your life lukewarm? As you look in your life, do you realize that you need the gospel to change your life and your priorities? That it's not the thing of first importance, but the second, or the third, or the fiftieth. And you need to right the ship. If that's so, draw a line in the sand today. Come and change. We at Calvary Bible Church don't normally do altar calls because we don't want to do an emotionally driven faith. But sometimes we need something that will draw a line in the sand to remind everyone here that we are all sinners in the need of grace and Christ is the one who offers reconciliation and hope. So today, we're going to do an altar call. Today, if you realize you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but you're trusting in all these other things instead of him, I ask you to come forward. No one's gonna judge you. They're gonna be cheering you on. And we'll talk and we'll pray together. If you look in your life and you say, the gospel's not of first importance and I need to change, I need to flip that. Something else is a higher God for me than the gospel. I ask you to draw a line in your sand and come forward and let us know so we can pray for you. We're not going to declare your sins in front of everyone, but we're going to get people to pray. Again, no one's going to judge you. They're going to be cheering you on, and you coming forward might actually convict them of something they need to come forward to. Brooke's going to play us in this last song, and as he plays, come forward. And if he needs to stop playing and we need to sing a cappella, that's fine. And if we need to stop the slides from going, that's fine. But if God spurs you in your heart and says, I need to make a decision for Jesus, or there's something completely unrelated to the sermon that's going on, but God's convicting me of this, 
and I need prayer, or I've got this hardship or pain in my life, I need prayer, you can come forward, and we'll pray for you. We are the family of Jesus Christ to come along and put our arms around each other and say we are in this together. Go ahead and stand. Go ahead, put the words on the screen, Pastor.